Good morning, everybody. It's summertime, huh? All right, praise the Lord. Summertime in Walla Walla. I tell you what, coming from San Diego, it's it's pretty interesting. On the dot, like what is it, the twentieth? Boom, it's summer. It's like 80 degrees and, and up, and it's just rising. Happens the same time, uh, you know, in fall and winter. It's amazing. It's because I only have, I come from like two seasons, like, you know, turn on your air conditioning because it's above 75. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, just awesome all the time. But there's nothing like seasons, seasons in life, seasons in church, seasons in all those things. And it's the contrast that, that helps us to understand the beauties and the difficulties. And we're in a situation here with the word of God, where it's, it's difficult for the Lord Jesus. It's uh, it's coming down to it. It's not the, it's the pinnacle of his ministry, but it's also the, uh, it's the crushing part of his ministry. And so um, with that, please open with me to Matthew chapter 21. Kids, you're dismissed by the way, if there's kids in here, Matthew 21. We'll be in verse 23 on Matthew 21, verse 23. It says in Matthew 21, verse 23, and it says, uh, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, with the exception, just to give us a little context, with the exception of the last verse in Matthew 28, which is at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 21 to chapter 28, that's dealing with the last week of Jesus's life. So all those chapters are just dealing with the last week of Jesus's life. And he's in Jerusalem at this point. And what's been going on is at the beginning of chapter 21, which we've been in for a week or two, or two weeks, uh, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, as was prophesied by Zechariah the prophet 500 years prior to this, that he would be coming into Jerusalem this way to the cries of Hosanna, Psalm 118, as prophesied 700 years before that, or 800 years or a thousand years or whatever it was. And he's entered Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple as they were taking advantage of the people. The priests were taking advantage of the people by selling uh, animals and, and exchanging money for these exorbitant prophets. And so the worship of God had become a way to profit off the people of God. And so Jesus cleansed the temple. He's, he's healing the sick. He's cleansing people who are uh, lepers. He's healing the brokenhearted, casting out demons. He's doing all this stuff here in the temple courts and he's teaching the people. And so we see the leadership of Israel, the chief priests here in Jerusalem and the elders of the people challenge Jesus's authority. And they're asking him two questions by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Two things like, now, up until this point, we've had a pretty, uh, pretty much been hearing about two major political sects or, or religious sects within within uh, Israel. There's two power structures. You know, in, in America, we have the Republicans and the Democrats. Those are the majors. Are there others? Yes. But in Israel, at that time, there were two major political powers, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the more conservative of the two, and they really had more influence and power than the local synagogues of the people. They were more the people's kind of, of 
of, of, of leadership. That's how they were. They were the, the, they had power in the local synagogue in all the, in the, in the towns of Israel, the, uh, sorry, in the synagogues of Israel, in the villages, in all those places. Um, because we know that, uh, there, although there was the main temple in Jerusalem, the local churches, the local synagogues were in all the towns and all the cities, and they really had influence and power in those areas. And they had a really strict interpretation of the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. And they had a really strict interpretation of that almost well, it, they became legalistic. And that was, that was their downfall there. But the other major sect, the other party there were the Sadducees and they were more the lib- liberal in their interpretation of scripture. And they were known for denying anything that was supernatural. So they didn't believe in the supernatural. Um, they ha- they actually came from mostly the Sadducees came from, uh, well, very influential and powerful families. And so uh, they were, the aristocrats of, of the society, they, in, 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 in having all those, that kind of sway and power and that pedigree within their upbringing, they held very prominent political positions, mainly the priesthood. Remember, there's no separation of church and state in Israel. It's all one big hodgepodge there. And so the priesthood was, was a very powerful um, group there. And they held the priesthood. They held the, mostly the chief priesthood and the, and the uh, position of high priest as well. And that controlled the whole temple grounds, the center, the capital of all the worship that was happening in Israel. So it's important to note this time that the Sadducees, they controlled the temple, which is where everybody would converge three times a year, three times of three times a year. And so when it, when it mentions the high priest here in verse 23, and I'm sorry, the high priests or the chief priests and so forth, these are all Sadducees just to let you know. And they are the ones in charge of the temple. They're the ones in the charge of all the money changing and all the taking advantage of the people and all that kind of stuff. I also have to mention that there's another group that's mentioned quite often with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and that's the scribes. Scribes are not a political group. They're lawyers. That's what they were. They're the ones who uh, would interpret the law and they could be Sadducees or Pharisees or a mix or other from another group. So they're there as well. And I have to mention that because they're always lumped in there, but we have to remember that there's no separation of powers in, in Israel. There's no separation of church and state. The law of Moses was the law of the land. It was a religious society. The law of Moses was the law of the land and the scribes were the lawyers interpreting the law. The priests were the ones controlling the temple and, and, and dealing with the sacrifices. And then you had, then you had the Pharisees who were the kind of experts on how to interpret the law in the local congregations. And so that those were all the power structures. But when you come to Jerusalem, they're all lumped into two categories, the chief priests and the elders which consisted, if you talk about the chief priests, that would have been the Sadducees all the way through. Uh, those would have been the highest ranking political priests in the land. And then when you get to something called the, the elders of the people, that's something called the Sanhedrin, which is a group of 70 men who ruled Israel. And that was from the Sadducees held a majority in that. And the, and the Pharisees held a minority uh, uh, control in that. And so that group of the elders of Israel were both the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and a mix of other people. So I just want to let you know that not much has changed. No matter what you call it, uh, you've got some pretty weird people in charge here who are all messed up. They never agreed on anything, by the way. 
um, they didn't agree with most things, but one thing they definitely did agree on is they did not like Jesus because he was threatening their power. And if you notice that, uh, that does happen in po- politics quite often is when they all agree on something, it's usually because their power is threatened or they want to maintain power. It's just the way of men. It's I'm not, maybe I'm painting this pessimistic politics are wonderful always. And they have our best interests at heart <laughs> is what I meant to say. So lest we get our 401, whatever it is taken away. But now we see in verse 23, we have this different group of people described here, the chief priests and the elders of the people. And again, this is the power structure of Israel. These are the main people within Israel. The ones who call the shots chief priests are the Sadducees. The elders are a mixture of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and others. And they are calling Jesus on the carpet for what he is doing. What are you doing healing all these people? What are you doing teaching? What are you doing receiving praise and walking, coming into the capital and, uh, you know, and people crying out Hosanna to you. What are you doing? Where did you get that authority? Where did it come from? Who gave it to you? Cause we certainly didn't. And we're the power structure here. What are you doing? That's what's going on. And that's the one thing that unified them was their hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they came to him publicly in the temple while he's teaching and they challenged him, asking him those two questions. And so Jesus says to them in verse 24, and I will ask also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I'm also, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus knows they're trying to trap him. So he says he would give him an answer for an answer. Verse 25. He asked them the question, the baptism of John, this is John the Baptist. From where did it come from? From heaven or from man? You know, is this a, is this, was John from God or was he just from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? You know, if John's from God, why don't you believe his message? Verse 26. But if we say from man, then we're going to be afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet and thus the political, <laughs> the thing that the Paul, the politicians don't want to lose. They don't want to lose the power that they hold. And so the people, that's who they actually feared. He said, and so they basically said verse 27. So they answered Jesus, the perfect political answer. We don't know. They gave him a non-answer. <laughs> And and Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And what this really shows us is the heart of the leadership of Israel. Listen, these were supposed to be the people preparing the nation for the Messiah. The one that their scriptures have been writing about forever. They knew the verses, the very center of worship, Jerusalem, all the sacrifices, the priesthood, Everything was designed and focused as a picture, an image of Christ, of the one who would come. The very ones who were in charge of that were supposed to be teaching and ushering people into the kingdom of God to point them to him. That's their role. That's their responsibility. But here's what's clear. Is that John was clearly sent by God. And his message to them and to the nation was repent, turn from your sin and get ready because he's coming. If you go to the last 
book of the Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus comes, it closes out by saying, get ready. It's talking about get ready. The Messiah is going to become, that's the next thing that you're going to hear from God. And here John pops on the scene 400 years later, and he is declaring that to the nation. And he says, he was speaking to the leadership. Hey, you brood of vipers. Remember we read that last week. Hey, you brood of vipers who warned you to the, to flee from the coming wrath, you know, repent, basically bear fruit worthy of keeping repentance. Show, show in your lives that you're ready for God. Turn from your sin, turn to God but they didn't care at all. They didn't care at all. They were not after truth. They were, they didn't care about truth. They were not there to lead the people in righteousness. They were not there to lead the people towards the Lord and repentance as they were supposed to be. They didn't fear God. They feared people. And this is why there's so much fluff coming from pulpits. So much time is they fear you. I fear you. Believe me. I fear you. You're scary people. <laughs> I don't like to be disliked. Who likes to be disliked? You know what I mean? I mean, there's a thing within us, but you can't give into that, right? We can't give into that in our places of work in society, wherever we are, we must fear God above fearing men. Right. But what happens is these people, because they wanted to maintain their position of power because they wanted to maintain their authority because they wanted to keep the accolades of people and, and everybody liking them and all this kind of stuff, because it was all about them and not, not him. They feared the people, what they thought. And they thought that John was a prophet, but nevertheless, John was calling them to repent. So they're stuck. So they give the non-answer, but they didn't care about repentance. They didn't care about righteousness. They didn't care about these things. And like all the failed leaders then and now they feared men above God because they loved to be praised, not to praise him. And so they gave a non-answer and Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you where I come from. But then Jesus goes ahead and turns around and he starts to paint the picture through parables. He always did this. He gave stories. He wouldn't give them the clear answer because they weren't ready to, they weren't, they didn't have spiritual ears to hear. So he wouldn't give it to them. Nevertheless, he told them the truth in a parable. And so he begins to paint a story, a picture here that would reveal an aspect of what was truly going on. Check it. Check out what Jesus does in verse 28. This is still publicly. This is in the temple courts. He's just responding to them, right? They're all there. All the people are listening. And the Pharisee, the, the leadership of the nation is standing there challenging him. And he goes, what do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go to work in the, in the vineyard today. And he answered, he says, I will not. <laughs> but afterward, he changed his mind and went. Anybody have kids like that? I'm not going to do it. But then eventually their heart comes around. They respond and they do it. Right. And then. Verse 29 says after uh, he says, I will not, but afterwards he changed his mind and went and he went to the other son and said the same. He said, go, you know, and he says, I'll go, but he didn't do it. Anybody have kids like that? Any of you are those kids, but Jesus says in verse 31, what does he say? Which of the two did the will of the father? Well, let me ask you, which of the two did the will of the father? 
The one who said they wouldn't do it, but then did it. Or the one that said they would do it and didn't do it. Well, the Pharisees knew the answer. The first. They knew the answer. It was the son who, although they said no at first, what happened? Eventually they did what God had asked them. They, they responded in obedience. It wasn't the son who said they would, they wouldn't, didn't. And Jesus is driving at a point that they were one of those two sons. Right? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. This, these are fighting words. Okay. <laughs> You're talking about the religious, super spiritual elite of Israel, the power structure. And Jesus says, those people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they went into the kingdom of heaven before you. Why? Verse 32, for John came to you in a way of, in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. He was calling you to repentance and you did not listen, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not after, did not afterward change your minds and believe they were watching these people's lives change in front of them. They were watching people break from their sin and have a broken heart towards God, the spirit of God. They were responding in repentance. And after they saw that they still would not do, they would not change their minds and believe. And so Jesus points out that they were the one that said they would do it and didn't. That's who they were. That's the leadership of Israel. What they said they said no to God's message to them. When God called them to repent and to turn from their sin, they would not do it. They said they were religious. They said they would be, they were God's son, but when, that what actually was happening was no in their heart and their life. They never changed. They never did it. They were all leaves, no fruit. Remember the story from last week of what? Of the parable of the fig tree when Jesus cursed the fig tree, cause it had no fruit. It was all leaves, no fruit. That's the leadership of Israel and many in Israel. And so he was calling them to turn, but they didn't bear fruit of repentance. They didn't go into the field, so to speak. You see, they claimed to be sons of God, to be sons of the kingdom. They claimed to be religious. They claimed to know God, but they were all leaves, no fruit. But the other son the other son obeyed the one you think wouldn't. Although they didn't at first as shown by the lives they lived, right? They lived in opposition to God, outright opposition to God, clear opposition to God. They weren't hiding it through religious facade. They were actually living out what they did, what they believed. They did not believe in God. They did not care about God. They didn't want to follow God. And they showed it by how they lived. And they were very transparent about it. And Jesus identifies these people as the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And again, if you don't know the context there, obviously it's a very religious society. Everything is centered in Jerusalem. And those who obeyed the law of Moses were accepted. And those who didn't were not. They were unclean. They were not allowed to worship. And so the tax collectors, those who were sympathizing with the Roman occupiers in charging the Jews exorbitant amounts of 
profit off of them. They, they collected way more than they should have right off of people. How many enjoy that kind of when people take advantage of, you No, the Jews did not like them. Not only were they Jews, they were traitor Jews for the Romans and they were stealing their money and they were living like lives of luxury. And then there were the prostitutes, right? So obviously all the sexual immorality there and Jesus identifies them. But if you go on Luke, you also see that it's soldiers, soldiers who had power to extort things from people and take things from people by force. They were being brokenhearted over John's message. These are all describing godless people. According to the standard of the word of God, people who are immoral, they're pagan living lives, totally given over by the flesh, not refined by religious overtones, right? They were, not like the leaders of Israel. They didn't go to synagogue, <laughs> right? They weren't good card carrying members of the Baptist convention or whatever, the, you know, they didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't hold to the feast. They didn't go three times a year. They weren't allowed to because they were so bad. They were godless by all standards. But here's the thing. But when John preached repentance, the spirit of God gently came to them and powerfully came to them. And they heard his voice and they were broken over their sin because God was calling them to him to come out of that and to come to him. And this is what happens when God begins to work in someone's life. His spirit works and there's an awareness all of a sudden of him. And you're no longer wrestling with all this. The things, the world flows, you're wrestling with him and his spirit is now speaking to you about your broken relationship with him. And you're convicted over your sin in your life, something the world does not want to hear about, but that's the very message that Christ came to preach and the very message that John came to preach because Jesus came to save us from our sin and from the penalty of sin. And so what happens here is John is preaching and these people who are so far off, so lost, who said no to God, what happened? They actually responded. They turned, their lives were changed. They turned to God. They began to sorrow over their sins. They're saying, what do we do? And John's telling them, stop taking money that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't take from people. Yes, collect taxes because that's your job, but don't collect more than you should. You soldiers, stop doing that. Stop using your force and your power to take advantage of people. Don't do that. Use your power for, to lift people up, to protect people, to do things that are good, to protect people from evil. Right. And then he goes on and talks about prostitutes. You got to stop that. God's not about unfaithfulness and all this stuff. He has love and it's defined and it's for a purpose. And there's a context to it. Repent, turn. And so they heard and they responded in faith. As John was preaching that one is coming who would give you eternal life or give you eternal judgment. And they, they chose life. 
I said, forgive me, God. And God did. And he saved them and he forgave them and he cleansed them because Jesus Christ, as we will see, he is going to the cross to die for our sins committed against God. Not so he can clean up one sin, not so that you have to go and continually um, offer sacrifices over and over and over one, one death for all time, for all sin, for those who believe you're totally cleansed. If you believe in him, that's what he does. He, He makes you brand new. That's a different thing than religion. God coming and doing what you can't cleansing you and offering you the free gift of salvation as you respond in faith. But that's something God does in us. And I love this because they were the son who did the will of God. That group of people was the son that did the will of God. How many of you raise your hands were of that group? Anyone? Okay. The rest of you are Pharisees and Sadducees. You guys, you're so awesome. I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm talking about. I love what Paul says in first Corinthians chapter six. I love it. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. He's speaking to a church that's having a lot of issues, but he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he starts listing what the unrighteous look like. And it's similar to Jesus's list there. He goes, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a broad list there. And that just pretty much describes society. And he basically says, those who practice such things, and that's the fruit of your life. That's what you do. That's who you are. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we like to point at other people on the list, but deny the part of the list that we're on, right? That's, that's always the fun part. Yeah. And so there's truth. Listen, no one's getting into God's kingdom. And that describes that first son. And by the way, it also describes those Sadducees who were taking care of the people, swindling them out of their money. But It describes that first son, how they lived. And it describes those in our society today who are unchurched and who are out of the, out of the will of God and all that kind of stuff. who are just living godless lives. And boy, how we sometimes as Sadducees and Pharisees like to point the finger. Anyone else? We know the truth. The truth is the truth. We don't compromise the truth. Listen, no one's getting into the kingdom who lives that way. Truth. We don't buckle down. We don't back away from that to try to win people's opinions or affection because that would be a lie. This is God's standard. But here's what happens is God comes to people like them. Like I was on that list. Anyone else? totally caught up, totally lost, totally abandoned to that stuff. Absolutely godless in my actions comes to me, comes to them. It says, come out. And I love that verse. You see, look at that nine 
and 10. Hardcore stuff there in Ephesians chapter six, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Hardcore stuff, and I, I feel the guilt of that. But check out what happens. What does verse 11 say? And such were some of you. Amen. How, what do you mean such were some of you? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Three words there. Jesus, his blood cleanses us from all sin. And you were sanctified. It means you were, take, you were cleaned up. You were moved from one place to another. You were, you were taken from a, an immoral thing, from a, a common use. A Sanctification means holiness. That's what it means. It means you were set apart. God took you out of that and he moved you into his kingdom for his purposes. You are his, pos- his possession. You're his child. Possession is kind of like you feel like, oh, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a thing. No, you're a blood-bought son. You're a blood-bought daughter. Sanctified, washed, cleansed, put in his kingdom for a purpose. And he goes, and you were justified. That means you, made, you were made just as if you'd never sinned. You were made right before God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the son that said no first, guess what? Jesus, they responded to God and turned to God through faith. And they went into the kingdom. While the Pharisees, the son who said they were all religious, but never gave their hearts to the Lord. They didn't. And that was Jesus's point. That was his point. And then he goes, and so he begins to paint another picture. Verse 33, we'll quickly go through this. And here's the irony, by the way. The one to whom they must give an account was standing before them and telling them this. It's not like Jesus is under their authority. He is the authority. He's the king. And they are the ones who have mismanaged his people and his kingdom. That's what's going on. And he's telling them, these other ones, they're in, you're not in his kingdom. Verse 33, here another parable. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. We live in Walla Walla. There's a lot of vineyards around here. We kind of get the idea. You see them pop up. People take care of them. They have, they have the fields. They have the fences around them. They put the things that the birds don't get there. Well-managed thing. So it's a picture they would have understood living in that society. There's vineyards around. And so the presumption here is that those tenants, when that owner leaves, they're supposed to take care of that, right? This was to take care of the property that they have been entrusted with and to tend the plants for the owner and to give the fruit to the owner when it's time, right? Does that make sense? Verse 34, and when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruit. He's in a faraway land. He sends his servants to the tenant, says, hey, I want to have fruit for my my vineyard. It's time, right? Reasonable, correct? What happened? Verse 35, and the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another and stoned the other. Sounds like we're living in Washington here. (laughs) Not good. People taking advantage of things. Not good at all. What's going on here? They're acting like they're the owners. 
the tenants are acting like they're the owners, like they own the place. Do they own the place? No, they're tenants. Is the fruit theirs? No. Is the vineyard theirs? No. Are the plants theirs? No. So what are they doing? Beating, stoning, killing these servants of the owner. That's a good question. That's a good question. Verse 36. And so what is that? What does that owner do? Is he's in a far off land? Well, he again, sends other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. So more servants, more of the same treatment. Things aren't changing. So what's the owner going to do now? Verse 37. And finally, he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. I mean, surely you wouldn't kill the owner's son, right? Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. You see, this is not a misunderstanding. This is intentional. These tenants wanted to have the vineyard for themselves. That's what they wanted. And so they killed the owner's son. Well, what the, what's the owner to do now? So Jesus poses the question back to the Pharisees who are listening to the story. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? I think we all have the sense of what will happen. What would you do? Shock and awe, right? Heads are rolling. Someone messes with your son. What happens? Someone kills your son. They kill your servants. They kill you and your property, your possession, your plants, your vineyard that you invested in. What are you going to do? Well, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they felt, they felt this. They said, they sensed the injustice verse 41. And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. What the situation required was judgment injustice. That's what was needed. And these guys knew it. These tenants needed to die a miserable death. And the new tenants needed to be installed. Ones who would recognize and submit to the authority of the owner. Right? The leaders of Israel understood this parable up to this point, but they did not quite catch the implication. And Jesus is going to let them know in the final verses here. Verse 42. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the, in the scriptures? Now these guys read this. That's all they do is read the scriptures. So he's letting them know you have no understanding. Let me point you to something you need to know. Have you never read the, in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118 verse 22 there. And what this, as the story goes in Israel's history is that when they were building Solomon's temple, the idea is that there was a stone that they did not recognize in the building plan as they started to get everything together. And the stone was an odd, odd shape and they didn't understand where it went. So they cast it aside thinking that they would go ahead and build. But later they actually found out, 
Oh, that's the cornerstone. That's the stone that's set first by which all other stones are put on top of and measured by the whole building is measured by this stone. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand who you're casting aside. You don't understand who's in front of you right now. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the cornerstone. That's what he's saying to them. And here's the parable. The owner of the vineyard is God, the father. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. The fruit, uh, the plants are his people. The fruit is the fruit of righteousness. The tenants are those who are supposed to tend to the vineyard, to tend to the people. They are the leaders of Israel throughout the ages. The servants were the prophets sent by God to the leaders of Israel. And what did this, what did the leaders of Israel do throughout the ages to the prophets? They stoned them. They killed them. They beat them. That's what they did. And so he kept sending more and they did more of the same. That is the story of the prophets. Old Testament, read it. That's what happened to them. And so finally he sends his son. Surely they will recognize the son, the heir, the owner of the vineyard, his son. He owns it with his father. And what did they do to him? And what were they about to do with him in just a couple days? Jesus knew it. He says, you're about to kill me and you're going to throw me out. And so what do you think is going to happen when the owner comes back? This is where it's all heading. God's going to give you a wretched, miserable death that you deserve. God will bring judgment, but he's also just in that he will give the kingdom to those who bear its fruit. Who's that? Those who repent, those who respond to God, who aren't leaf, all leaves, but have a heart towards God. They've responded to his spirit. And so guess what church? If that's you, yours is the kingdom. Isn't that awesome? You've been given the kingdom of God, but I'm not a, no, you're not. That you are a precious blood bought son and daughter. If you have believed upon Jesus Christ, as your Lord and savior, and you've turned from your sin, not from some religious way, but you've responded to the spirit of God and he's made you new. And now you live a life that shows the fruit. It comes out not because you're trying to produce it for other people to see, but because you're attached to him because his life is in you. And so his fruit comes out, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the spirit, fruit worthy. Good tree bears good fruit, right? And this is what he's saying in verse 43. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Galatians 5, 22, if you want to read about the fruit of the spirit. So, we can get into that a little bit more some other time, but I got to stop. But verse 44, and he tells them it's going to be taken away from you and given to others. Verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone, talking about the stone that the builders rejected. Well, the one who falls on him, you're going to be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's this talking about? 
What does this mean? Some think this is talking about salvation on the one hand and judgment on the other. The context here, I believe is the inescapable judgment coming upon these men. That, that, that's what I think he's talking about. I've thought of it differently in the past, but I think that's what it's talking about. They were about to try to break the stone. They were about to crucify Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying is you're going to fall upon me in the sense you're going to try to crush me, but you're going to end up broken in pieces. And by the way, those of you who are indifferent towards me, I'm going to crush you. (laughs) This is the King talking. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You're either his or you're not. You either respond to him or you don't. You can't get away from him. And he longs to bring people to himself. And he's fully paid the price and bled out to do that. And his arms are open wide for all who would come and repent. That's where he is right now. But make no mistake. He is also, although he came on a donkey the first time in peace, he's coming back on a war horse. And he's going to establish his kingdom and righteousness and there will be no unrighteousness in it. So today is the day of salvation. Turn, repent, believe, receive, be changed by God's grace. And so I do not think this is speaking about judgment and salvation in that falling upon the rock means, Oh, I'm giving my life to the Lord. That could be, that could be that because that's true in scripture. Right. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here. It's, I don't think he's talking about falling upon the Lord and then the Lord falling upon you as judgment. I think the Lord does that sometimes in parallelism in scripture and that he'll say like, he loses his life, finds it. He who finds his life, loses it back and forth, but that's not what's happening. There's no hope here. It's all crushing. It's all gone. So he's just talking about judgment. And that's why I think he's talking to these guys, because if you flip to chapter 23, he's going to start laying it out for these guys. So it just gets worse for them. But here's the thing. Verse 45, when verse, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They couldn't do anything, but by the end of the week, they would have it figured out. By the end of the week, they would have it figured out because they would take a majority of the people and rile them up and pay them off to give false witness towards the Lord. They would do a quick trial in the middle of the night while no one was watching and they would have his judgment before the morning and they would nail him to a cross. But as Psalm 118 already says that the stone of the builders rejected, it was actually all God's plan in the beginning. God knew this would happen. And Jesus wasn't unwillingly going to the cross. He was telling them he was going to the cross. He was telling them what was about to happen that week. And here's the thing for us. He is coming back. And right now, just as all those prophecies were saying he's coming the first time, the prophecies are coming. He's coming back. It's all lining up. It's lining up and we're going to get into Matthew chapter 24, which talks about the end times here coming up after 23. And it's going to be, it is lining up. The world is getting to the place where we are out of control. We are absolutely out of control. And Jesus is going to set things straight. But today is the day of peace. 
Today is the day of gospel. Today is the day of hope. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of come to the Lord and receive him. Amen. And the church, those of us, man, we got to be careful that we're not turning around and judging people. We know who we were. Amen. We know who we were and what we've done and what, where our hearts have been. Amen. Yes. And because we have received such mercy, such grace from God, man, that's the void. That's the, the, how we should turn to the world and say, yep, it's true. You're a tax collector. You're a prostitute just as I was. But here is the hope. Jesus Christ, turn from your sin. Don't forget that part because without it, it's not true. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and he'll make you changed. And the Bible says that that sounds like foolishness to those who are perishing. It'll sound stupid to the world, but to those who have ears to hear, to those whose who's God, who's God's spirit is working in, it'll be the sweetest sound. It'll be the sweetest sound. Be faithful church. Amen. Lord God, we just, we ask that our hearts would not become hard and religious. That we would be those people who are broken by your grace and who love one another. And it's shown in how we live, not in a superficial way, but in our hearts by what we do and who we are and how we act and how we treat people. Lord, may we fear you above anyone else. May we always speak the truth, but may it be done and seasoned in love and grace, just as you, Lord Jesus. We long for your return, but God, we long for this world to come to know you. And so Lord, we are a minority, so to speak, but Lord, you are the majority. And so we just come to you and we ask for your strength in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week. Hey, Saturday night is worship night. We'll clear the stage. We'll kind of dim the lights. We'll have a good time of singing and praying. So Saturday night, seven o'clock. God bless you. Take care.